What does the Bible say about repentance? Can you really repent unless you actually intend to really stop doing that particular sin? It's the Cross Culture Q&A question. Pastor Clay's answer right after this week's Crosswalk. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Throughout history, Satan has used his demonic horde, those, those spirits who sided with Satan, he has used them to influence, to control people. These demonic spirits go out, they influence these world leaders, and they draw them to this place where this final battle is going to take place. Armageddon. It's a name that most of us have heard, but know little about. Actually, the word Armageddon only appears one time in the Bible, but its importance in regards to the end times and God's plan make it a most important subject. God has purposes, for, I think, for everything He does. I got thinking about that, you know, this earthquake and the cities crumbling and, and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, if you had to pick one thing that you could point to, to point out the greatness of man, the ingenuity of man, the creativity of man, the power of man. If you could point to one thing, what would it be? I thought about it, you know, and the only thing I think of was our cities. These gleaming monuments of glass and steel and concrete that reach into the sky, our cities. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. This week in our year-long study of the book of Revelation, we come to the second half of the 16th chapter of this great book of prophecy and the final two bowl judgments that are poured out on the earth. The destruction, death, and devastation that we've already seen in the seal judgments and in the trumpet judgments are hard to take in. But as we're discovering, they pale in comparison to the bowl judgments. Someone might say, but now, now, wait a minute. Now, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Yes, we are. But as I understand this, they won't be any longer because they spit in the face of grace the way the Pharisees spit in the face of Jesus. And the age of grace for men will have passed and the age of God's judgment will have come. Last week, Pastor Clay showed us the first five bowl judgments and why God wants the church to know about his judgments. And this week, we'll see the final two bowl judgments. One opens the door for the final battle on the earth and the other closes the door on the age of man. If you've got your Bible handy, you might want to open it to Revelation chapter 16. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Today, we're going to cover the final two bold judgments in Revelation chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 12 and running through the end of the chapter. And these two bold judgments, quite honestly, need a little more explanation because they are the conclusion of God's earthly judgments. Now, we know there's still, you know eternal judgment and standing before God and that sort of thing still to come further on in the book of Revelation. But this is this marks the end. This is a pretty significant spot here as we come to the end of Revelation chapter 16 because it marks the end of God's earthly judgments. Now the details, I'll just tell you ahead of time, some of those details will come out further in the chapters ahead uh, of, of some of these events. But, but this is the end of the bold judgments which are the last set of judgments. Revelation chapter 12, and uh, reading through the end of the chapter. Thank you so much for being here today. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. 
And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together. In the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon, the great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every hand fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God... Because of the plague of the hail. Because its plague was extremely severe. Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 through 21. Let's just dive right into this this morning and begin to break down this text and find out what God is saying to us in this. We we covered the first five bowls last week. Today we start with the sixth bowl. And the sixth bowl... Uh, poured out is very, very specific. Uh, it's, it's a very specific, directed bowl. That's, that's quite clear. The sixth angel pours out his sixth bowl and it dries up the great river, the Euphrates. And, and the Euphrates River truly is one of the great rivers of the world. It's roughly 1,800 miles long and it uh, basically... Uh, separates the eastern part of the world, specifically the Orient, from part of the western world, certainly from the nation of Israel. For thousands of years, it has acted as a, as a natural uh, barrier, a natural boundary to that. It was, by the way, uh, according to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, it was the eastern boundary of the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. It was also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. And it has, as I said, acted as this this barrier that has separated the east from, certainly from Israel and from that part of the world for thousands of years. But with the coming of the sixth angel and the sixth bowl that is poured out, the Euphrates River is dried up in order to, as the text says, dried up so that the way would be prepared for the king's from the east, literally the kings from the sun rising. Now, a lot of speculation about who these kings or who these nations are. Uh, Nations like China and Japan and India frequently come up uh, in this discussion because of the population of those nations, the sheer numbers of people. 
The only thing that we really know for sure is that it is apparently a conglomeration of these nations, because the word kings is plural, kings, a conglomeration of nations that, that come together to, to uh, march across this dried up Euphrates River and to ultimately, as we'll see when we get there, to ultimately make war against Christ as, at, at his return, at the very end of his, his return. So that's what we know about them, and that the way we prepared for the kings from the east. And then Verse 13 and 14, it says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, the text says. Uh, it's an interesting thing about frogs. Um, you know, historically, and I guess even still today, uh, frogs play a prominent role in the occult, in sorcery, and in witchcraft, and, and, and things like uh, that. I don't know whether these uh, spirits actually look like frogs or what John is saying is that they, that they leaped out of their mouths like a frog leaps. I don't know. What I do know is that they are demonic. That is clear. If you've been with us in the study, you, you know the symbolism we've talked about. But it says coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Anybody remember who's the dragon? Satan. And, and you can go back and listen if you're not sure about those. We've talked, walked through all those. And out of the mouth of the beast, the beast is Antichrist. That's right. And y'all going, Antichrist? 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 Y'all know this. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. And this is the first time he's referred to as the false prophet. It shows up right here in Revelation chapter 16. Earlier he's referred to as the other beast or the second beast, but he is the false prophet. And he is who? He's the religious leader who comes alongside of the Antichrist. Remember, the Antichrist empire will have two legs. It will have a political leg to stand on, and it will have a religious leg to stand on. This false prophet is the religious leg of the Antichrist's empire. So these spirits come out of them. What we know is they are demonic, and they go to influence these kings of the earth and not, uh, kings of the east. And not only that, but in verse 14, we find out the kings of the whole world, they go forth. To influence them, to uh, to uh, to impact them, and to get them to come across the Euphrates River and come and gather from all over the world. The text says to gather them together, and here it is for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Boy, even in that phrase, you know, to me, even in that phrase, there's a sense of finality to this thing. Even in that phrase, you get the sense that, that, that man, this thing's getting ready to wind up. That the, this great day, the great God, this great day of the Lord, this, this thing's winding up. You, you really get that impression that as, as he speaks it, that this is going to happen. That, this, that these, these demons are gathering them together. Throughout history, Satan has used his demonic horde, those, those spirits who sided with Satan. He has used them to... To influence, to uh, control people. A- anybody that, uh, that doesn't believe in, in demon possession has never seen an episode of Jersey Shore or Jerry Springer or, or something like that. I- I'm making a joke. I've, I've never uh, actually seen either, any of the shows, but I've seen enough of it, enough clips or commercials or whatever. No, there's not much redeeming value to it. But the point is, these demonic spirits go out they influence these world leaders 
and they draw them to this place where this final battle is going to take place. And, and then, interesting, in verse 15, verse 15 is a parenthetical insertion. And you may remember me talking about that before. It's a parenthetical insertion. It's something put into the storyline. The storyline is broken for just a second uh, to insert something. Interestingly enough, uh, we saw uh, uh, this par- same parenthetical insertion uh, in the seal judgments, just like that. And we saw a parenthetical insertion in the trumpet judgments. And now a parenthetical insertion into the bowl judgments. Some commentators believe that this, this encouragement in verse 15 is intended for the people who will still, for the Christians, the followers of Jesus who will still be living right at the time of the, of the very end of the events. Remember, millions of people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. As, as, as Scripture says, millions of people will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. Millions of them will be murdered, put to death by the Antichrist for refusing to take his mark and for refusing to bow down to his image. But some will survive. We do know that, according to Scripture. Some will make it through. Maybe they're hiding up in the mountains. Maybe they're, I don't know where these believers will be, but some of them will survive. And so some people believe that John, that this insertion comes in there to encourage them as they come down to the end and it's getting so intense and everything, that, you know, to, that just to hold on. And that's certainly a great word, and they'll need that word. But I'm of the belief that this verse 15, I mean all the text, but this insertion is actually here for all the believers throughout all the ages. It's there for us because, because it follows right on the heels of that same statement. The great day of God, the Almighty. It comes in there right at this, at this reminder, at this juncture that reminds us there is a great day coming. There is a victory coming. There is a day when God is going to defeat our enemies and he is going to establish his kingdom. I know we've said this over and over and over again throughout these judgments, but God keeps pounding it into our hearts and pounding it into our minds so that we understand this. That there's this great day coming. There is an end. This is not going on just forever. That God has a plan. And so, here comes verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. In other words, remember church, I'm coming. And I'm coming quickly. And I'm coming like a thief. In other words, I'm going to be coming unannounced. Unexpected by the world. They're not going to be looking for me. But remember church, and no matter what goes on in your life. No matter what happens in your life. No matter the persecution or the suffering and the hardships or the heartaches or the whatever you face. Remember, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming unannounced. But I am coming. And he says, keep, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Or some translations say uh, garments. I, I, the implication, I believe, is keeps them from being stained. In other words, um, the righteousness that you and I put on, having entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, to, uh, to use that metaphor, this righteous garment that is not of our own making, but it is that of what Christ has provided for us, we put that on. The idea is don't become, listen, listen, church, remember, don't become stained by the things of the world. Don't become stained by the influence of the things of the world. Because when I come back, it's all passing away anyway. All that stuff that you think is so valuable, all that stuff that you think is, this, is so, uh, so important and that matters so much, every bit of it is just dust and it's all going to go away. 
So keep your perspective where it needs to be. Keep that eternal perspective. Russell Hill and I, one of, one of the gentlemen I meet with on, on, uh, on a weekly basis, uh, we have this thing now that, that life is this. So we say life is this. So we're in this discussion one day about uh, our lives in comparison with eternity. I mean, how do you even do that? Since eternity, since time is irrelevant in eternity, we say it's a thousand years, it's a million years, it's a billion years. It's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's eternity. And, and we're around here, who knows, 70, 80 30, 100 years. I heard that the oldest guy in the world had his birthday. Uh, what was that, Friday? That's all the news? It's like 114 or 117 or something like that. You know what that is? That's this. Life is this. It's, that's what Paul says all throughout his letters, what Peter is saying. It's what Jesus said. Keep the right perspective. And I think that's what verse 15 is saying. Keep the right perspective. And then, verse 16, we come back. To the storyline. And they gathered them together to the place which is in Hebrew is called Harm Megiddon. Literally, the hill of Megiddo is what it literally translates. The hill of Megiddo. It's a, it's a hill, a large hill, you know, depending on your perspective. It might be a mountain. When I, I grew up in South Florida, so, you know... Everything's a mountain. If you grow up uh, down there, our mountains are ant hills. You know, that's the closest we get. So, but but it's a large hill just west of the Jordan River. That this this place here, it's a real place. That uh, this hill just west of Jordan River that overlooks what's known as the Plain of Estrelon. It's sometimes also called the Valley of Jezreel or even the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's referred to a couple of times. Uh, it is uh, this place that war has transpired with, throughout history. It's the place where Barak defeated the Canaanites in Judges chapter 5, this same valley. It's the place where Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. It was uh, a passage used by the Roman Empire. It was used by the Crusaders in the Middle Ages. Napoleon once called this valley the most perfect battlefield of all the earth. And in God's timing, he will gather the armies of the world to this place for one final epic battle. Now, I should say that, it, that in the context of what we looked at earlier, it, it may be a war, it may be a series of battles, and it's doubtful that all the armies of the earth could fit into this valley, which, by the way, is about 14 miles wide, about 20 miles long. It's doubtful that, that the armies of the earth, however many there are at that time, that they would all fit in that valley. And so we, we looked a few weeks ago, and we saw that it's a battle line that will probably take place on, on a greater scale, up to about 200 miles long. But what we do know is that this place, this valley of Megiddo, will be the epicenter of the final battle that will take place on this earth. And the kings of the east and the kings of the world are gathered into that place, this valley of Megiddo. It's kind of exciting to think about, quite honestly. This is a real place that you can go to and you can visit and, and it's been talked about for thousands of years as the place where God will kind of wind this whole thing up when Christ returns. And then, uh, here we come to verse 17. It says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl 
And the text says, upon the air. This is the only angel that pours his bowl out upon the air. Don't know why. Could speculate that it may be because Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. And since this seventh bowl is bringing to a conclusion Satan's dominion over this world empire... It may be a reference to the fact that, that this seventh bowl being poured out is dealing with Satan and is dealing with his world empire, the Antichrist, the false prophet, uh, the whole nine yards, that God is now dealing with them. It's poured out into the air, and I heard a loud voice out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. I like to refer to it as the victory shout of God himself. I think it's a victory shout of God himself. Remember, this has been going on for thousands of years and all the stuff that's gone on and all of the rebellion and all of the sin and all of the righteousness and all of the grace and everything that's going on in this epic battle that's been transpiring ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve to turn away from God. It's coming to an end. And so I believe that this is a victory shout. It is done. The last time we heard a shout similar to that was on a cross, wasn't it? Where God himself suspended between heaven and earth, bleeding out his life's blood, shedding his blood for the remission of our sins. And Jesus, I believe, shouted out, It is finished! The sin debt had been paid in full. Redemption was possible for you and you and you and me and every person who would come to Christ. And now, here in chapter 16, at the end of it, after the tribulation period, after the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, at the very end, here comes this shout from heaven itself. It's like God can't even wait. He's shouting right from the temple. It is done. I think it's awesome. Verse 18 and uh, 19 begin to talk about some of the events when this announcement comes. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. By the way, go back and look. Just like there were the seal judgments. Just like there were with the trumpet judgments. Here comes the, the, the lightning and the thunder. It just, you know, it, it, just, it just speaks of the awesomeness of God. Now, I don't even know if that's a word or not. But there isn't a word to adequately describe the power of God. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. It just, it, in John's vision, it's describing the power of God. And there was a great earthquake, just like there was with the sealed judgments, just like there were with the trumpet judgments. But this earthquake makes those pale in comparison. As great as they were, and as great as earthquakes as the earth has experienced in the past, they are nothing compared to what God says is coming upon the earth at the very end of man's age. There was a great earthquake such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. The text says the great city was split into three parts. I don't know why it makes reference to this great city exactly. And there's been speculation. What is the great city? Some people believe it's Rome. Some people believe that it's Babylon, ancient Babylon, that that will be restored in the latter days. Some people believe that it's Jerusalem. I tend to lean towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem is referred to as the great city in, in I think, Revelation chapter 11 and, and, and verse 8. But, but to tell you the truth, I don't know for sure what the great city is. What I do know, what I do know is, is this. And the cities, and the rest of the cities, and the cities of the nations fell. 
and the cities of the nations fell. The great city is split in three parts, and the rest of the cities of the nations, think of the cities of the world, fell. Now, I got to thinking about that this week. You know, because God has purposes, for, I think, for everything he does. I got to thinking about that. You know, this earthquake and, 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 and the cities crumbling and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, if you had to pick one thing that you could point to, to, to point out the greatness of man, the ingenuity of man, the creativity of man, the, 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 the power of man. If you could point to one thing, what would it be? I thought about it, you know, and the only thing I think of was our cities. Our cities. These, these gleaming monuments of glass and steel and concrete that reach into the sky as far as the eye can see, it seems sometimes, that are scattered all over the wor- world in which millions and millions of people in these cities that, that are marvelous monuments to our creativity and our ingenuity, and in one shake of God's creation, they will crumble into a pile and heap of concrete and steel, twisted. It is... It is the power of God on display compared to man's power. And this earthquake comes and it shakes man's cities to the very core. Babylon the Great, you see there in verse 19, uh, I believe it's just a reference to the world system. the, The Antichrist world system that will exist at that time. That God will bring down. This this is it. This is the conclusion that God is going to bring all of that down. But you know, in a very real sense, that world system is already here with us. I mean, if if you think about it, I mean, look around you. Any empty seats near you? By and large, the world's not interested in the things of God. Can I say that? And listen, I'm I'm going to die. I'm going to die. If God will let me, I'm going to die trying to fill these seats up two or three times. Or wherever he lets us be. I'm going to die trying to do that. But by and large, the world's not interested in things of God. As a matter of fact, the world doesn't think that it needs redemption. That it doesn't need God's sacrifice. Doesn't need God's love. In a very real way, that, that world system is with us today. Maybe not to the, to the severity that it will be in those days. But I think we can already see it building towards that, that end. A world system that just doesn't need God. Uh, any of you ever heard that? Ah, it's, that's a crutch for weaklings. It's the whole idea of God. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Verse 20 is just kind of a continuation. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Apparently, the, the very topography of the earth will change as a result of this, this earthquake to end all earthquakes. The very shape or, or look of the earth will change. Islands swept away. I, I was thinking about it. I was, I was in Sri Lanka uh, eight months after the tsunami of 2004. Eight months later and still the devastation was, was, it, was unimag- it was unbelievable. Eight months later and you, just, you couldn't imagine entire city blocks just swept away. Just gone. I saw there's a I saw a train a train car I mean a train car sitting still sitting or it was then when when I was there in 2004 sitting just off of the tracks I don't know 10 15 feet or so off of the tracks where this wall of water had lifted this train full of people off of the tracks and just moved over and set it down drowning almost everyone inside the train car mass graves 
where thousands of people are buried. And, and, and I, I get the impression that, that this, that, that what I saw then is nothing compared to what this is going to be like. It's the final judgment of God. And then there comes in this last verse, verse 21, something that as I, as I thought about it, it kind of struck me as odd. It says, and, and, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down on men. And I thought, okay, if I was God, I probably would have started with the hailstones, you know? <laughs> Maybe end up with earthquake. I mean, there's nothing left, right? I mean, a- after this, this uh, earthquake to end all earthquakes, after, after the, the very shape of the earth changing and islands swept away, after, after all of that, now the mother of all hailstorms comes down. Hailstones, a hundred pounds each. Why? Why hailstones? Why this storm right at the end of time? And then I realized it was right in front of me the whole time. Verse 9, they blasphemed the name of God. Verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven. Verse 21, they blasphemed God. And as Warren Wiersbe reminded me, according to Leviticus chapter 24, the penalty for blaspheming God is stoning. Someone might say, but now, now, wait a minute. Now, that's, that's Levitical law. We're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Yes, we are. But as I understand this, they won't be any longer because they spit in the face of grace the way the Pharisees spit in the face of Jesus. And the age of grace for men will have passed and the age of God's judgment will have come. And so here we are, Cross Culture Church, face to face once more with the urgency of going to men while we're still under the age of grace. And saying God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not have to perish. Would not have to go through this. Would not have to experience God's wrath or God's judgment. But they could be born again. They could be adopted into the family of God. They could be cleansed from their sins. We're face to face with that again ladies and gentlemen. Because the clock is ticking. And time is running out. And you can say oh yeah. Oh yeah. Evangelists have said that for, for years. Everybody said that for years. You're right. But one of us is going to be right one of these days. And you know what? Even if it's not in my lifetime that Christ returns and and all of this transpires, even if it's not in our lifetime, you know what? Time's still running out for those people living here right now. They've still got this. So the big picture biblical principle just looks like this. God's final two bold judgments. Dry up the Euphrates. Shake up the earth tear down the cities, and bring down Satan's world empire. That's Revelation chapter 16, verses 12 through 21. It's the conclusion to God's bold judgments. You and I live in the age of grace. You and I, who have come to Christ, have been saved by that grace. And you and I know people around us that need to know God's grace. What a picture of the end of the tribulation period. The age of man has come to an end, and the world system that wanted to have nothing to do with God has come crashing down under the weight of His righteous judgment. Once again, we're reminded that God is firmly in control, and He is bringing this world to its fitting conclusion before He introduces His kingdom. What a glorious time that will be. 
We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It's Q&A time at Cross Culture Church where each week we take a question that someone has turned in and we try and deal with it from the perspective of God's Word. Today's question looks like this. What does the Bible say about repentance? Can you really repent unless you actually intend to really stop doing that particular sin. So uh, the question is geared toward the idea, can, you know, if I just say, oh, God, forgive me for doing that, and then I just go right on doing that, and maybe the next day I come back, oh, God, forgive me for that, or the next week I come back, but uh, there's really no intention to stop doing that sin. Can I re- is that repentance? Can I really be forgiven? For th- am, am I forgiven for that? I think is, is the intent of the question. The short answer is No. No. <laughs> um, the word repentance in the original language in the Greek is metanoia. It means to turn around. It, it, it implies the idea of going in a different re- direction. If I'm going in one direction and that direction is wrong according to God, if I'm actually repenting, I am turning around and I'm going in a new direction. Uh, and so it requires change on my part. Uh, numbers of passages of Scripture that we could look at this morning, but let's just look at uh, just a few. Matthew chapter 3, we find this. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, this is John the Baptist are talking about, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming up to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Clearly John the Baptist had not attended the latest church growth conference because if you want people to join your church, you don't call them a brood of vipers as soon as they come in the door. But um, uh, John says, produce fruit, watch this, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, John was doing this, this baptism of repentance. People were coming to him as a demonstration that they were repenting and turning back to God. And so here come the Pharisees and they're getting in on the action and John knows their hearts And he knows their hearts. You know how he knows their hearts? He knows their hearts by their actions. And so he says, produce fruit in keeping with the presence. If it's real, then it'll show up 
uh, in your life. In Acts uh, chapter 26, I think it is, we find this. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles that all must, here it is, repent of their sins and turn to God, watch this, and prove they have changed by the good things they do. So repentance should naturally lead to a change in actions as a result of true repentance. And then uh, a classic story uh, that most of you know and that these children in here know is the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And that, that song, kids, y'all remember that song uh, about uh, Zacchaeus come down for I'm going to your house today. Y'all know that song? Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, Zacchaeus is up in the tree because he hears Jesus coming to town. And, and remember, tax collectors were notorious for ripping people off. Under the authority of the Roman government, they, could, they were to collect the tax that the Roman government um, required. But the Roman government gave them authority to collect more than that as their pay. So whatever they collected was up to them. And they had the, the strength of the Roman government behind them. And so tax collectors were notorious for ripping people off terribly. Well, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus coming to town and, you know, here's this famous guy. He gets up in the tree. Jesus sees him and he, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I'm going to your house. And he goes to his house and then we find uh, this story, the, the rest of the story. It says, but Zacchaeus, this is after his encounter with Jesus, but Jesus, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Watch what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to save, seeking to save what was lost. Jesus could make that declaration that salvation had come to Zacchaeus' house because by Zacchaeus's uh, reaction by Zacchaeus' actions to uh, hearing the message from Jesus, he repented. He turned around and he said, God, uh, the, the money I've ripped people off, I'm giving it back to them. I'm giving my money to the poor because it was theirs to begin with. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Not because of his works, but because it was a demonstration that truly Zacchaeus had repented and was trusting in the Lord. There's Q&A for today. Thank you.